We'll get started. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another Sunday, another Lord's Day, to come into your house and to uh, to hear your word, to praise you, and to sing to you, and pray to you. So Lord, I pray that uh, this time would be a time that you would send your spirit to work. Uh, Lord, you have promised that your spirit works through his word. And so we ask now that you would fulfill that promise. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we, uh, as you may remember from last week, we finished our series in the book of Hebrews, um, wrapping up with the conclusion last Sunday. And so now, this week, we begin a new series, a new series. And our series uh, that we're going to be doing basically throughout the rest of this fall is we're going to be making our way through the books of Titus and 2 Timothy. All right, so you can turn to Titus if you'd like to, just to kind of take a look at that book. Uh, Neither of these books are super long. They're not lengthy. Uh, Hebrews was 13 chapters, right? Uh, Titus and 2 Timothy are two relatively short books, and they fit within the broader category of what we call the pastoral epistles. And the reason why we call them the pastoral epistles is because these particular books are all about teaching the church. All right? Now, there's a certain sense in which you know, every book of the Bible is, is teaching the church in some way. But the pastoral epistles are a little bit unique. All right? And the reason why they're unique is because they have at the center of them the doctrine of the church. All right? They are very uniquely church-centered in terms of the kinds of things that they're talking about. And so we're going to spend this fall, as we're working our way through these books, uh, talking a lot about the doctrine of the church. And the reason for that is because Titus and 2 Timothy are going to be talking a lot about the church. And we're going to learn a lot about the nature of the church, uh, who is included in the church, what church members are supposed to do, various offices of the church, and the officers of the church qualifications for the officers, all, of, all these kinds of things. These are things that we're going to be looking at as we are making our way through Titus and 2 Timothy. Now, uh, generally speaking, when I do these exegetical series and we work our way through a book of Scripture, I like to do kind of an introductory session. It's kind of explaining the big picture look at some of these books. And uh, because I'm so excited about this series, we're actually going to be doing two introductory sessions to Titus and 2 Timothy, right? And so next week, we're going to do more of an introduction to the book of Titus and focus a little bit on 2 Timothy as well. But today, we're actually going to step back and take a little bit of a bigger picture introduction. Okay, so we're not going to today start working our way through these books. Rather, we want to get the big picture view of not just the pastoral epistles, but we want to just take a step back and think a little bit about the church itself. All right? We want to make sure we have a good grasp of what the whole counsel of God, that is what all of Scripture teaches about the doctrine of the church. And the reason why this is important is because for many evangelicals today, and many Christians out there, they have, and you know, I'm not trying to point fingers, we may be in this category too, but many evangelicals today have a very 
deprived or a very underdeveloped view of the church. Because if you go out and you take a look at your average Christian today, what are they thinking about how the church works, about what it is, about their role in the church? Usually the attitude that you commonly see people have is simply me and Jesus. Right? The, the only really essential thing for the Christian life is me and my private relationship with Jesus. Now, that is obviously really important, right? Because we want to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture teaches that, right? We want to have that. But that is not all that there is to the Christian life. God has not designed his covenant people to be isolated. God has not designed us as Christians to be people that are just on our walk, flying solo with Jesus, having no uh, connection with the rest of God's people. That is very anti-biblical. Because in Scripture, we find that the doctrine of the church is not just some kind of peripheral thing over here that's just, you know, this little optional thing. As if we can be involved in the church if we just feel like it one day. No, the doctrine of the church is central to Christianity. The doctrine of the church is very, very important for Christians. And that's why I'm excited about this series. I'm excited about working through Titus and 2 Timothy, and I hope you are too, because in these books, we're going to learn a lot about the church. We're not going to be going over you know, a systematic theology of the church. Right? We're going to run into issues as we encounter them throughout these books. But overall, I think by the time we get done with this, we're going to have a pretty good understanding of what the church is, how it works, and what our place is in the church for each one of us, whether we're an officer or whether we're just a congregation member or just, you know, whatever, whatever role that we find ourselves in. All right. So with that in mind, then what we're going to do this morning is we want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. What is the church? All right. What is the church? And the goal as we look through this is we want to ask that question, what is the church, and answer that question by looking at the whole of Scripture. We're going to do this morning what's called a biblical theology of the church. Now, maybe you've heard of biblical theology before. I know you have if you've been in the Sunday school class because I bring it up sometimes. We did a lot of biblical theology in our sacrament series. And if you remember in that series, when we were looking at, say, a biblical theology of baptism, what we were doing is we were going through all of Scripture from the beginning to the end, and we were showing how the doctrine of baptism first appears, even way back in the Old Testament, and how that theme develops and grows throughout the rest of Scripture. And so then we can see baptism didn't just pop into the New Testament church out of nowhere. Uh, but there were a lot of precursors to baptism and a lot of things happening in the Old Testament that connect to what comes for us in the New Testament. And so that's the kind of thing we want to do this morning as we're looking at a biblical theology of the church. Because like baptism, the church didn't just pop into being in the New Testament. The church had precursors. In fact, not only did it just have precursors, but in fact the church itself existed before the New Testament. The church itself was there from the very beginning in the Old Testament. 
Now, it went through various changes, various stages, and we'll look at some of those this morning. But overall, God's people are one throughout all of history. We see this, like we confessed, I think it was last week even, in our Sunday morning service from the Apostles' Creed. And you remember in the Apostles' Creed it says uh, that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And notice that first adjective there. We believe in one church. There are not two peoples of God. As if God has got one people over here and one people over here, and he's, he's kind of working with both of them on different timetables and different scales. No, God's people have been one throughout the history of the church. And we're going to see that this morning because we believe that God's people are one throughout Old and New Testament. So, long story short, let's work through the church as one this morning. Throughout the whole Bible, this is a biblical theology of the church. And the church falls under three major periods in redemptive history. All right, so if you, you can think about these maybe as the three points for this morning. Right. The three major periods of the church are firstly, the church under promise. And then secondly, the church under type. And third, the church under fulfillment. Right, so the church under promise, under type, and under fulfillment. Those are our three major periods. Now, the church under promise is what we have before the nation of Israel. So when we talk about the church under promise, we're talking from the Garden of Eden all the way up until the Exodus, when God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now, we call it the church under promise because it was the time when God's people had a promise. Right? And it was the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve, which was that Eve, Eve's seed, right, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. The very first gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That was the promise that God gave to his people. Right, that was the promise that he gave to Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve were, if you will, the first church. Adam and Eve were the first church. In fact, they were the first church, and they had a church building. They had a sanctuary. They had a place for the worship of God. Now, it wasn't constructed like our church building with bricks and mortar. Their church building was the Garden of Eden. And we can see that. We don't have time to go into all of the great details of this, this argument, but the Garden of Eden was a temple. It was a precursor to the tabernacle. In fact, Adam and Eve were called to be priests in the Garden of Eden as that first church. They were to work and to keep the garden. The same terms that were used to describe the Levites who were to work and to keep the tabernacle. So there in the Garden of Eden, right at the very beginning of Scripture... We have a church, a covenant assembly of the people of God calling upon his name and serving him. Right, that's the first church. And God gave that first church, particularly after the fall, a promise of the gospel. And that promise is what all of those people under the promise were holding fast to. All those people before the nation of Israel, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those believers, all those people who were part of that early, early church. What held them together? It was the promise that the Messiah would come. The promise that the Messiah would come 
and that he would usher them into a state where they could dwell with God. You think about that. When Abraham, when Jacob, when Isaac, when all these people, when they ran into God during the course of their life, when they found something that God was doing or God appeared to them in some way, what was the first thing they did? They built an altar and they worshipped. And why was that? Was it because they thought that that area was prime real estate and they wanted to claim it? No. It was because the promise that they were holding fast to was the promise of God's covenant dwelling. And when God appeared, they said, God is in this place. Let us worship. God is in this place. We want to dwell with our God. And this is what is described in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. And this is what it says. It says, To Seth also was Uh, A son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then here's the kicker. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And in the Hebrew text there, it says people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Not just a general Lord. Not just a God of the universe. But Yahweh, the covenant God. The covenant-making God. This early church, this early people of God was a church. And this is precisely why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 says this. Listen to how he addresses the Corinthian church here. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those, listen to this, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. You can see what Paul's doing there. He is grabbing that language right out of Genesis 4, and he's applying it to the New Testament church. Those who called upon the name of the Lord were a church, just as those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus are a church. And this is the church under promise. They are awaiting for the promise, and they are calling upon God that he would come and dwell with his people. And the, there is a, a certain, certain distinction here that needs to be made, though, with respect to this very early church. Because in the book of Genesis, this very early church in this church under promise age of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, that whole age was characterized as a family church. Nowhere in Genesis are God's people ever called a people or a nation or an assembly. They're always only called the children of so-and-so. They're a family. It's only when you get to the book of Exodus that God's people become more than a family. They're called out as a people. But it's precisely because they're a family in the patriarchal period of this church under promise that the father had all of the roles of the church officers. In the patriarchal period, the father... Right? He exercised the kingly office of rule. He exercised the prophetic office of speaking God's word to his family. And he exercised the priestly office of offering sacrifices for his family, building altars, interceding for them. The father filled all of those roles because the church was a family. And it was small. 
And yet once we move from the church under promise to the next section, which is the church under type, we have the exodus. And it's in the exodus where God takes that family, multiplies them, and calls them out to Mount Sinai to become not a family. But now for the first time in scripture, these people are called a nation. They are called an assembly, a congregation, a people for God's own possession. And once we have this, excuse me, once we have this transition from the church as a family to now the church as an assembly, now we have the establishment of officers for this assembly. Priests, what are they going to do? They are now going to offer the sacrifices. Now the father doesn't offer the sacrifices. The father used to do that. Abraham offered sacrifices for his family. Jacob offered sacrifices for his family. But now there's a change. Now the father doesn't do that. Now it's the priests that do that. Now it's the priests that must go into the sanctuary on behalf of the family. And further, now it's not the family that's completely in charge, exercising his kingly office. Now with the Israelite nation, we have the establishment of new officers. Specifically speaking, if you look in Exodus as well as in Numbers, the officers that God institutes are elders. And these elders are gifted with the work of the Holy Spirit. They are filled with the Spirit to go out and to accomplish what God wants them to do. And these elders are placed into a hierarchy. There are elders placed over thousands, elders placed over tens, elders placed over one hundreds. There's a hierarchy of, if you will, assembly courts. And so here in the Old Testament, we are already seeing God, as he brings his people out of Exodus... Now a family has been changed into an assembly. Now officers have been established. And those officers are now executing kingly and priestly and prophetic offices. That's a major change. And this is why we call this section the church under type. Because the Israelite church in the wilderness is a type or a foreshadowing of the New Testament church that would come. Because the New Testament church is not known as a family. The New Testament church is an assembly. The New Testament church is a people with officers. The church under type is what we see in the wilderness. And this is precisely why Stephen, you remember Stephen in the book of Acts? He preaches that wonderfully amazing message, kind of surveying the whole of redemptive history and showing how it all points to Christ. Well, this is why Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, calls the Israelite gathering in the wilderness a church. All right, let let me just turn over there really quick. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Here's what Stephen actually says. Verse 38 of Acts 7. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give to us. 
And notice at the beginning of verse 38 there, he says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Now the translators are making a call there, and no problem with that translation because the word church literally means congregation or assembly. But the word in the Greek there is ekklesia. The word there is church. And Stephen here is making an important statement saying the Israelite church in the wilderness was a church in which Christ was. And so that's the church under type because it typifies the New Testament church that was to come. But now we get to the third and final section of the church, the history of redemption here. We have the church under promise, which was the church of the patriarchs as they eagerly awaited the promise that God would dwell with them. And then we have the church under type, which was the Israelite church in the wilderness, where God, in fact, did establish a tabernacle to come and to dwell with his people, though not fully. He was only in the tabernacle. And yet now we come to the third section, which is the church under fulfillment. The church under fulfillment. And there's actually two stages to this last section. Because we have an already and a not yet. You remember, we make that distinction a lot around here, right? The already and the not yet. And that's because it is so important to understand. Here in this church under fulfillment, or the New Testament church, we have two sections, the already and the not yet. In terms of the already, right, the church of the New Testament has been established by Christ as the fulfillment of what the church under promise And the church under type was looking forward to. Christ, by his finished work, has now caused a transition to happen between the Israelite church and the New Testament church. That transition is symbolically screamed at us. Because when Christ died, what happened in the temple? The veil was torn. Why? Because the presence of God is no longer confined to the temple. Now that dwelling presence of God that the patriarchs were desiring, that dwelling presence of God that was foreshadowed in the Israelite church, has now come to a greater fulfillment in the New Testament church, because wherever two or three now are gathered in his name, there he is. There he is. The patriarchs who called upon the name of the Lord... We're of the same assembly as we are today. Only now we have a greater fulfillment of the promises. And yet we don't yet experience that full fulfillment of the promises. Because we have the promises already. And yet we are also waiting for them not yet. We are still waiting for the full consummation of those things. Because while Christ dwells in us richly. While God dwells with his people. While Christ tabernacles among us. Yet, he doesn't do it in his final fullness. Because we will experience the final fullness of the dwelling presence of God and the full fulfillment of God's promises in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so, long story short, as we sort of put all of this together, as all of these pieces are starting to fit together, we see that the church is not a new entity. The church is not something that popped into being in the New Testament. The church has been at work in the world from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. They were a church. 
The patriarchs were a church. The Israelites were a church. The New Testament believers, like us, are a church. We are the covenant assembly of God's people. Now, there are a number of implications that we can draw from all of this, right? And we're going to see a lot of these implications unfold in a much more detailed way as we're dealing with 2 Timothy and Titus. But I'll list these, these implications here for us and talk about them because they're important. Number one is that the New Testament and the Old Testament church is one church, which is what I just said. It's one church. It's not two distinct people. We have one movement here. Now, there are changes. We've seen those changes just very briefly as we've traced them out here. There are differences between the church under promise and the church under type, or between the church under type and the church under fulfillment. We can see those differences, and we could trace out those differences in greater detail. But overall, we can see that as the New Testament authors use the Old Testament references to the church, they are applying those to the New Testament church. They're saying this is one people of God. So secondly then, another implication is that the New Testament church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament church's expectations. And this is also something we just traced out. What was the church under promise looking for? They were looking for the dwelling presence of God. What do we have in the New Testament church? We have the dwelling presence of God. Third, this whole understanding of the church throughout scripture helps us to understand the nature of the church as a covenant community. And this is really important, right? This is one of the major uh, big picture things that we need to understand if we're going to understand why we baptize the children of believers. Because the church consists of more than simply professing believers, The church itself consists also of the children of believers. And part of the argument for that is the fact that the New Testament church and the Old Testament church are the same fundamental people of God. And in the Old Testament church, we know without a shadow of a doubt that both believers and their children are considered part of God's covenant people. So you can see this is going to have big implications for our understanding of who is included in the church and therefore who receives the sacraments of baptism. So that's the third thing. Fourthly, another implication. This helps us to understand our purpose as a church. Helps us to understand the purpose of the church. And if I can connect that with the next one, it helps us to understand our individual roles within the church. So what is our goal when we are assembled as God's people? What is the thing that we're striving for? Are we striving to have a a wonderful social club here at Pearl Presbyterian Church? Is that our goal when we come together, to have a social club? I hope not, because that's not biblical. We're not here for a social club. There may be other churches that are because they've removed the gospel, right? But that's not what we want. If we're going to understand what the church is, that's going to give us a profound sense of our mission, of our purpose, of the reason why we are coming together to listen to God's teaching, to listen to the sermon, to praise him, to pray to him, to do all the things that we do on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. 
So we're going to have a better understanding of our purpose and our individual roles as Christians. And then that kind of bleeds over here into the last implication, which is that all of this understanding of the church in both the Old and New Testaments is going to help us understand the nature and the function of church officers. And we can understand why, why is it that at this church we have elders and deacons? Did we just decide one day that, well, yeah, that would be an efficient structure. Let's, let's do that because it makes some sense to us. No, we didn't just make these offices up out of nowhere. These offices come out of Scripture, and they have precursors in the Old Testament. So we can see then that if we understand the nature of the church from the whole of the Bible, it's going to have a lot of profound implications for the way we understand the church today and how each of us fits into this. And these implications, notice, I'm not going to trace out exactly how we answer and flush out each of these implications right now. We're going to be doing that throughout this series as we run into them in the text. Okay? So... Next week, we're going to look at a much more careful introduction to Titus and 2 Timothy. Talk about some of the things that we're going to see in those particular epistles and how we can understand them best. And then we're going to start making our way through the text. And my hope and my goal throughout this series as we do that is, as I've said, that we would have a much more rich and developed understanding of what we mean by the church because it is important for us. All right? Sound like a plan? All right. Let me close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for uh, the church. Lord, we thank you for the rich teaching that we find in your word about it. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would strengthen our hearts and our minds and that we would, we would learn a lot from this series. Uh, that we would learn what you have called us to do and that we would learn how important it is that you have ordained the church, that you have ordained this institution for us so that we can, we can be blessed and so that we can bless you. And so, oh God, we pray that as we enter worship this morning that you would fill our hearts with joy and gratitude and that you would change us this morning. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.